able to enable positive change. It's one thing that you missed out. What's your MBE in? Oh, oh, that's oh yeah, that. <laughs> so um, along alongside uh, all of the work that I've done actually in physics, I think sitting in a physics lecture theatre at university and being uh, one woman and nine guys in that kind of environment, which is not as cool as it sounds, um, that really did impress on me that I was sort of underrepresented in physical sciences and there weren't many people like me around. And I think it's largely because my parents didn't see it as an issue, certainly my dad's made Viv didn't see it as an issue that I was a woman wanting to work in physics but a lot of girls and women do sort of look at physics engineering computing and go yeah I don't fit in there that's not for people like me and I think I wanted to challenge that perception and also challenge the kind of cultures that create that perception um, and that lack of welcome I think so I started off by working in the Women in Physics group at the Institute of Physics alongside being a STEM ambassador in schools. I don't do schools work anymore because it's basically like kids being lectured by the mum and no one listens to the mum. So I let some of my colleagues who are rather closer in age to um, those in sort of secondary school and college go and do those sessions instead. And I also... Um, represented the Institute of Physics at the European Platform of Women Scientists in in Brussels and uh, then probably about 10 years ago set up a non-profit called Science Girl because I, that was in part a response to an EU campaign um, which tried to pitch science to women by making it look like a cosmetics advert and I thought no 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 the real thing is so much better than this so much more interesting than this so we ended up doing a photography project, which we made into a 2014 calendar with sort of showing women sort of doing various sorts of science in various sorts of contexts. And that grew into a community of people that thought, we're not done, we still want to do uh, creative things that show how much fun it is to be in science, how much good you can do with science. So we've done all sorts since then, science festivals, um, schools events, um, video projects. Um, I'm currently working on some resources for primary school teachers. And it just kind of rolls from one project to another as different people get involved. And um, we just think, actually, that'd be fun. Let's do that. And I think being a non-profit that I'm personally in charge of gives me more freedom to kind of just roll with what we think is a good idea than if I was sort of part of a official body like the Institute of Physics or the medical physics equivalent IPEM who've got a very prescribed agenda that they have to deliver to. And that's great, but it doesn't give you the opportunity to bounce or to drop things when everything's, everyone's busy and just hasn't done have the time. Um, so it, it does fit in a bit more easily with my professional work than a, a bigger scale uh, professional society commitment. Heather, what science do you teach when you go out and do projects out in schools? Because Nam and I are OCM ambassadors. We absolutely love going into schools and colleges and, and kind of helping to promote what it is that we do and get people excited. But a lot of questions that people ask us is, what do you do in schools to inspire the future generation? So what is it that you do, Heather? How, you know, what do you talk about that gets people excited? I think it's showing the difference it makes um, to the kind of uh, everyday lives of, of people that they know. I was doing some teacher training for physics teachers a couple of months ago, and I Put up the statistics sort of one in three people will get cancer during their lifetime and teachers are absolutely staggered by that I've just been through you know how our imaging devices work and all the physics behind it how the how the treatments that we use in uh, that you'll be rather more familiar with than I am any work and and the and one of the teachers went oh yeah 
And he'd had a conversation in a medical physics lesson with a student who was going, how does radiotherapy work, sir? I thought, well, you know where that question's coming from now, because someone that child knows is having radiotherapy and wants to know how it works. And is it OK? And is it going to be effective? And some of those questions you can't answer and some of them you can. And it's just that awareness of your audience and that all of this stuff is very close to home. And even if the kids you're teaching aren't personally affected, then someone they know will be. So, yeah, I do talk about exactly what we do, but I'm also prepared for the, I'm having this, what what does this scan mean? What, what should I do about that? And you end up, you know, being very careful in those conversations that happen after the talks about about not overstepping from my role as a clinical scientist into essentially being an amateur oncologist that's not that's not my job but I can say well this is what this is doing please go and ask these questions of someone who can answer them next time you have a chance or go and look at this resource online that's reliable so I think it's that direct relevance that's interesting um there's also the awareness of the scale of what physics speaks to more broadly as a, as a subject, which is the reason why I fell in love with it in the first place, is that it covers everything from the sort of bits and bobs inside atoms, that's the technical term, um, right the way up to galaxies and universes. And the same laws apply across that whole scale. And there's something incredibly beautiful about that and fascinating about that and certainly when we went to Blue Dot Festival with Science Girl last summer which is a Joddle Bank in Cheshire so just down the road from me I can actually come home and sleep in my own bed which is a rare thing for a festival and um, we were talking about sort of everything from the tiny um, to the ginormous and then on the last day we talked about the wonder of you you know we look at the universe from a very sort of anthropomorphic perspective we think that everything revolves around us but actually we're pretty amazing so it's not surprising that we're fascinated with ourselves and that was the point at which we talked about medical imaging and had a model of a skeleton and lots of different scans and said which bit of the body do you think this is and sort of sticking them on with bits of velcro so I think there are ways of sneaking those sort of medical imaging and medical physics conversations into the broader scope of talking about what science covers as well. Can I ask a, a question about Science Girl on the website that um, yeah, you are you have always been trans inclusive? Yeah. Why was that important? I mean, it's it's never been a, an issue um, for us. I think it's a difficult conversation to have because any conversation about trans rights and feminism always brings the trolls out the woodwork on social media and it's one of the reasons why it is pretty impossible for us to be activists on twitter anymore because the algorithm is now gauged and uh, to amplify discord and to feed off um, people have very strident reactions to things and I think there is a conversation that we need to have about as a society about how we safeguard everybody's rights and how we risk assess um, situations where there are all kinds of vulnerable people but Science Girls is a space for women in science. It's a space for um, feeling like you're part of something rather than uh, being excluded from the scientific community. And as a straight um, cis woman, I'm in a much more strong position uh, than a trans woman in that community. And I don't think a science girl loses anything by opening our doors to people who are actually much more vulnerable than I am. And we've, as part of the primary science um, resources that we produced, we included a local trans woman in those resources who's a chemist at the University of Manchester, and I felt that was really important. I mean, the primary school kids who are looking at those resources won't know that Charlie's trans, but it's important that she's there. 
So, Heather, you did talk about kind of some of your initial work was around positron emission tomography. Um, it's kind of a, an area of your specialism. Can you tell us a little bit about PET scanning, what it is, why it's used? Um, yeah, positrons are the antimatter version of electrons. And whenever I do a talk about positron emission tomography, um, I do like to scare everyone with the original equations that uh, the physicist Paul Dirac uh, drew up to explain um, electromagnetic radiation and how it can be described using quantum theory. And there are two solutions to those equations. And one solution predicts a negative electron, which is all very familiar. And the other solution uh, predicts a positive uh, version of uh, the electron and as soon as that was announced that was basically all the th all the experimental physicists straight out the gate you know we need to try and find um, this positive version of the electron it's got to be out there somewhere um, and all the particle physicists were like going well let's get something that we think emits positrons and, and look for something that basically behaves in the opposite way uh, to an electron so I think it was only about four or five years later that um, Anderson actually saw a particle that curved away from a positron emitting source in the exact opposite direction in a magnetic field um, to an electron and went, yeah, that's the positron signature. And I did actually go to an exhibition at the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester on a uh, the history of particle physics, which included loads of stuff from CERN and this photograph. And I was just standing there and it was like, you know, <laughs> like this icon of physics. And I had a little moment because this is like the beginning of positron emission tomography, the discovery that this particle exists. The really funny thing is that was I think the second date with the guy who's now my husband and he's still with me after I basically stood there and got a bit gooey eyed over a picture of a positron bending through a magnetic field. So, yeah, he's a keeper. Um, so, but yeah, I digress. So when you have a positron emitting source inside a person, that positive uh, version of the electron runs into a negative electron just within the patient's body and the two cancel each other out it's all a bit star trek antimatter meets matter you get energy um, as a result but instead of powering uh, the enterprise you get two back-to-back -back 511 kv gamma rays and if you put a big ring of detectors around the patient you can basically pick these out as arriving at exactly the same time and so positron and met electrons somewhere along the line collecting connecting those two gamma rays and you collect loads and loads of these lines and overlap them uh, using a mathematical technique called reconstruction to build up a map of where all those positron emitters are inside the body and that's essentially what you're doing in a PET scan. So in short what we do is we inject people with molecules that give off antimatter and then um, that antimatter collides with their electrons and we detect the radiation that results, which is not on any patient information leaflets, but sounds tremendously cool to me, actually. You know, I injected someone with antimatter today. It's not a bad job, is it, really? <laughs> How do you explain it to a patient? We just, I mean, we describe it as we give a slightly radioactive injection and that injection gives off radiation that's picked up by our detectors so we tend to keep it pretty straightforward and um, we do occasionally get people who ask what the positron in positron emission um, <laughs> means and then if there's a physicist to hand or a, a technologist who's got a few minutes <laughs> you know we do do get take the opportunity to explain in more detail at that time but I think it's worth uh, bearing in mind when we're writing patient information leaflets and it's a real art is that the average reading age in the UK is about eight to ten so your information has to be pitched at 
at the sort of top end of primary school without dumbing down too much. So keeping it simple and and straightforward in terms of how it's done from a physics point of view is really important. I think a lot of patients are more interested in what differences it's going to make and what the risks are rather than necessarily what's happening inside the big machine. But some patients really, really are, and it's helpful to have the opportunity to answer those questions as part of the prep for the scan. Heather, what would you say to someone who absolutely loves physics but hasn't necessarily decided that medical physics is for them? Well, I wouldn't want to put them off from just doing physics just for the sake of it, to be honest. I think a lot of our innovations in medical technology have come about because somebody who's worked in a completely different corner of physics has gone, actually, I wonder what would happen if, and applied that technique to a medical context. I was in a conference in Edinburgh recently, and there was a mathematician who'd worked on um, the way that droplets form and travel. And he'd use a really rapid imaging technique um, to sort of track this droplet uh, using a PET scanner. And it was a completely different mathematical technique to what we'd usually use for image reconstruction. Now, I was sat next to a colleague who works for Siemens and he went, is that what I think it is? I went, yeah, that's a whole new image to reconstruction technique. Just because it's come from a different part of maths that hasn't touched PET scanning before, it's basically come to that with a completely fresh pair of eyes. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Um, so I think just for a start, I mean, uh, do the thing that you like the most, really, and gets you out of bed in the morning. Um, and because I think physics just teaches you a very wide range of skills that are applicable in a whole range of contexts, and you don't know um, which corner of physics you're going to end up in. Quite a lot of my colleagues in the medical physics bit of MR have started out in the academic bit of MR and moved over to the NHS over time. Um, I came through the scientific training scheme, as I said, and um, whilst that's highly competitive, it is the most um, consistent, I would say, route into medical physics. Essentially, if you've got through the STP scheme, it's meant to be structured so there will be a job somewhere in the country for you at the end of it. Heather, just for anyone who doesn't know what the science training program is, how can you apply for it and what, what is it? Um, so uh, it's called the Scientific Training Programme and um, there is a National School of Healthcare Science um, so if you basically Google their website address, um, there'll be full details of it. Also, if you're particularly interested in medical physics, if you look at the Institute of Physics and Engineering and Medicine, there's a load of career information on their website, which will point you in the right direction. Um, but essentially, applications open in January for the following September. And if you're going into medical physics or engineering, you will need a first degree not as in a first class degree, but an initial undergraduate degree um, in sort of uh, that particular field, so sort of physics or engineering. If you've got something like uh, biology, chemistry, then there are loads more sort of um, more laboratory orientated uh, jobs or heading towards um, pathology or genetics, that sort of thing. Um, there are loads of different healthcare science careers. So if you just think, actually, I quite fancy using the science in the context of the NHS, then it's a good it's a good option to check out. And you are paid throughout your training and you get a master's qualification as part of your, your training over, um, I think it's two, three years. I lose track. I did the old version that took forever. Um, but you come out as it of it as a state registered healthcare scientist and that's basically um, your boarding pass for a career into as a healthcare scientist. Heather, just going back to PET CT quickly, just thinking for patients that sometimes get to see their report, 
how does it work in an oncology setting? So PET-CT is one of the gold standards for follow-ups for quite a lot of tumour pathways. Mm. I mean, I think in general in oncology, uh, all of the test results are pulled together and then discussed in the oncology appointment so that the doctor is able to provide that broader context as to, okay, we've got all of this information about where you're up to um, with the stage and extent of your disease, and this is what I propose we do next. So whilst patients can obviously request their reports, they can request any section of their medical record, I think the preference of oncologists is to basically gather all that information and discuss it and in the context of making uh, treatment decisions. Um, so a PET scan for a large number of tumours now is done as part of the initial diagnostic workup. So someone's got symptoms that suggest they've got cancer, um, but a series of imaging and non-imaging tests are done to say, well, is it? And if it is, what kind of cancer is it? And uh, then that the initial uh, conversation with the oncologist will be, well, this is what we found out and this is what we're planning to do, or this is what we've found out and we don't need to do anything. Um, so I do find in that initial diagnostic workup, it can be quite a difficult place to be as a healthcare professional because often you're dealing with people who haven't really accepted that they're being assessed for um, potentially having cancer or it hasn't quite sunk in or they're just the head swimming because they've got like I don't know six or seven appointments in the space of two weeks and it can be quite hard to explain why a, a scan needs to be done with someone who hasn't really processed what's happening to them yet so that that can be difficult but I do think actually the best person to answer the root of all of their questions is the specialist they're going to see at the end who's got all the information and we would speak in the most general terms about um they've seen something on your lung that needs investigating and this is one of the tests that we would do that for um rather than getting into a great deal of the detail and trying to preempt that conversation with their medic Heather, what projects and research are you or your team involved in at the minute? Is there something exciting on the horizon? Oh, there's loads. There's loads exciting on the horizon. I think that's the exciting thing about um, medical technology in general is that it's not static. It's always evolving. And PET in particular, um, the first PET scans in the literature using the kind of technology that we use now were actually published in the year I was born. So PET is literally as old as I am. And as you can tell, I'm so very young and it has only been around a couple of decades. Um, so we've, we started off in PET with doing like brain scans and then it broadened out into more of a whole body technique. Um, and PET scanner technology has been refined dramatically in the last probably five years or so in that we've got something called time of flight imaging, which uh, helps us locate the source of the PET signal closer to its origin. We've now got much faster detectors, which improve, again, our signal localization. And the latest big shiny new kid on the block is total body scanners which you can literally get the whole body in at once they're big long scanners and those are very exciting for studying uh, systemic disease because if you can imagine you've got a condition that affects bits of the body at opposite ends and you put an injection and in, you can see how that's taken up by by related systems within the body um, whereas if you've got, only got a short bit of scanner you've got to focus in on oh I think that might be a bit that's interesting uh, and not really noticing what's happening at the other end of the person when it might be part of the same disease process um, 
The Medical Research Council's just funded two of these scanners. One's going into Edinburgh, one's going into London. Royal Free have just bought one. Um, there are discussions about where the third and fourth scanners are going to go in the UK. I have written my letter to Santa. Um, and so it's, uh, it's an exciting time from a technology point of view, but also in terms of applications, because we now have quite a lot of traces that are paired with therapeutic molecules, so we label them with a beta emitter, so they give localised radiotherapy or, or label them with alpha for the particles uh, for that purpose, looping all the way back to that physics lesson when I was, I don't know, 15 or something. Um, and we have these sort of theragnostic pairs, as we, as we call them. So we would do the diagnostic PET scan and say, OK, we've got this deposition of PET tracer in the body. If we give exactly the same molecule with a beta or an alpha emitter attached to it, we will deliver a local radiation dose to those same structures. And therefore, we can give very, very targeted molecular radiotherapy, as it's called. And that's tremendously exciting. Um, we're working up to doing some lutetium-labelled uh, PSMA therapy next year, uh, which is our new therapeutic that we're developing. And uh, we're also doing some weird and wonderful PET imaging with zirconium-labelled activated T cells to look at the immune response in solid tumours. Um, we're trying to label... Um, a really novel therapeutic that we're looking at that's actually already labelled with yttrium 90 but we're trying to image it with PET-CT which is a bit of a challenge and but we're also looking at new ways of processing PET data uh, so uh, there's an awful lot of information in a PET scan that gets a bit blurry because you're requiring the scan over several minutes and patients are breathing and their hearts beating can't really blame them for that but we do need to compensate for that movement in the image and the fact that it does make our, our our information about where structures are a little bit fuzzy and there are now sort of ai algorithms that will look into the pet data and say okay it's moving like this and that movement has the same frequency as a breathing cycle so actually if we subtract that movement information out from this sort of network of anatomical landmarks in the pet data we can shrink that pet data back to what it would be if the patient hadn't breathed during the scan and that's actually some software that we're trialing at the moment it's commercially available for some pet traces but we're trying it out for others so there's a lot of stuff that's quite uh, close to clinical application there's some stuff that's a bit more oh zirconium that'd be fun um <laughs> so and uh, i'm hoping that we'll get to do more and more of that particularly if uh, santa thinks i've been good enough for a fancy pet scanner can i ask a physics question about what you've said heather all of it sounds really exciting but when you say um something gets taken up so the radioactive material how does that work so we can think about the injections that we use in nuclear medicine generally as essentially being really diluted drugs. They're not pharmacologically active. You're not going to um, get a response to the molecule in those quantities. But they do follow a particular process in the body. So if you pick a, a molecule that is excreted through the kidneys, and you can attach something, a radioactive atom to that molecule. And as long as you don't change the shape of the molecule too much, it'll still do the same thing it did when it wasn't radioactive. And there's a whole science and an, an industry of radiopharmacy, of labelling those molecules and making sure they do track through body systems in the way you expect. And that's another way in which these long turtle body scanners are really useful, hint, hint, um, Santa, uh, in that you can actually study where all of the, where these traces go in real time. So if you're, for example, you've developed something, you've labelled it with a positron emitter like fluorine 18, and you go, I think this is going to be a really good tracer for 
I don't know, um, calcifications in blood vessels. And you can then inject it into a patient and say, well, where does it go? Does it actually go to all the calcifications in blood vessels that we can see on the CT bit that comes with the, the PET scan? Or does it go to somewhere really random, like it just all sits in the liver or the spleen and it's useless? For my PhD, I did um, do some work on whether we could image uh, cell proliferation using a tracer called iododioxyuridine, which has shown a bit of promising brain tumours when it was sort of directly injected into the sort of post-surgical cavity in the brain. But when you inject it into a vein in the arm, it basically just gets metabolised by the liver and it's useless. So you get a perfusion signal, but no cell proliferation uh, signal. So that was the kind of result you don't want if you're doing tracer development, but it is in the literature somewhere. So um, other people don't repeat those two years of pain of trying to get that to work. <laughs> it's really, really interesting, Heather. And something that stood out to me is how much medical physicists are part of that MDT when actually from a clinical facing side of things, you know, it can be very easy to not necessarily see the amazing work that they're doing. Um, do you think maybe the scoop of practice for physicists is going to change over the years as diagnosis, therapeutics starts to evolve? I do think so. And I think it's going to be quite context specific as well, because I always say that not every medical physics job is, is the same. You know, you can be a medical physicist for nuclear medicine, but what your nuclear medicine department does locally can be very different to what the department down the road does. So my experience at Manchester Royal Infirmary that was very focused on cardiology, neurology, paediatrics, a bit of oncology, but not loads because the big oncology centres just down the road and you know the Christie specialises in that sort of thing so I think where you are also changes um, your scope of practice already but I think as with all you know technology specialists whether they come from a computer science or an engineering or medical physics background in the NHS uh, we're increasingly in a position where we're having to understand a technology in order to apply it successfully in, in, in order to optimize it in order to get it working efficiently and effectively and delivering best value for the situation that you're in um, because anything you buy whether it's a phone or a or you know, an iPad or a two million pounds worth of PET scanner, it all comes with default settings and they might not be the best for your particular application. So it's up to the scientists in the building um, to work with the technologists and the medics and to work out what is what's the best way of using this bit this bit of kit in this setting. Um, so I think our our role is going to be continue continuing to be about that sort of technology specialism but also increasingly about that interdisciplinary working and that communication of how the tech works and what it can do and that becomes an increasing challenge as the tech moves so quickly that you almost have to learn what it's doing and learn it well enough in order to, to translate it to the people that you're trying to get to engage with it. And, you know, the big thing at the moment is AI. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a computer scientist, but I'm having to learn how all these algorithms work and how they should be trained and how they should be validated and what good AI looks like and what bad AI looks like in order to make informed decisions about products that are being offered by scanner manufacturers. And like, is it safe for us to reconstruct our images in these ways? Is it safe for us to use them to guide image interpretation? And I think that ability to communicate complicated science to a diverse audience, which, you know, I've... I've done for everyone from primary school kids to university um, undergrads and postgrads to chief execs in various hospitals. All that skill set is becoming increasingly important. Uh, but 
it's rooted in that depth of understanding which you need the physics education or the engineering or the computer science and that training in healthcare science to be able to say okay what matters in this clinical context um, before you can translate to a non-expert audience or a non-specialist audience. Fluid is it between maybe discoveries that you're making day to day by using whatever it is that you're using within your discipline to then feed back into industry to go on to further develop you know is that an open conversation that happens regularly? Yeah, I mean, the absolute ideal would be if a scanner manufacturer came up to you and go, Heather, what would you like from a PET scanner? Well, I'd like it to do this and I need it to be this side. And um, radiographers, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, the bed's got to move like that and it's got to be, these bits can't be any heavier than this and the quality control's got to be done really quickly and ideally automatically. And the workflows have got to be really easy to build. And I think, ideally you'd have that very basically here's my shopping list go build me a thing kind of relationships with industry but also industry have got their own experts involved who've got years and years and years of experience of building their scanners in particular ways so sometimes you come to better solutions when you have those discussions together because they know what what is possible quickly with the technology that they've got and what software they've got in the pipeline that maybe you could help develop. And I've had research collaborations with several of the big manufacturers throughout my career and had MSc and PhD projects sponsored by them. And I think as long as it's clear when you present the data where the funding's coming from and what the influence of industry has been in those conversations, I really don't see any harm in it. I think we get a much better result if we have those collaborations and do a lot of the work that you do do rely on funding from external projects or is there allocations of funding specifically to do science from your nhs trust i in theory um there is research and development in all of our job descriptions finding time for that is the difficult thing um, and that's not just the technologists and the physicists and the radiopharmacists it's the radiologists as well um, I think that's where if you're doing industry funded research, it can be quite helpful to draw down funding to sort of buy out that time. Um, but then the rest of the job still needs doing anyway. So unless you're doing a big enough volume of work that you can essentially create additional posts that are um, compensating for the the uh, research capacity work and picking up the clinical stuff, it can be quite tricky. And there are opportunities, obviously, to, to work with academics as well. And increasingly, there are opportunities for joint academic and uh, NHS posts. I think from talking to people who've done sort of clinical fellowship type roles, whilst in some ways that places them in the perfect situation and that they're embedded in an NHS department and they've got time to do research. So they've got access to the patients, they've got time to do research. Actually, balancing the demands of their academic and clinical roles can be extremely difficult. So I don't think there's a perfect solution, but there are opportunities in several directions and it's a case of going well okay what what's what's possible you know what would I be like in an ideal world and what how how close can we get to that I do have some people in our team who are pretty much research dedicated that's where their strengths lie and they've moved into roles where that's their main focus but I'm trying to create enough space in our structure that everyone can be active in research and service development because I think that just makes the job more interesting and means that people are more invested in a good quality service because they're part of making that happen. How easy is it to go to industry and say I want to research this can you help me? I think if you've already got a relationship with a manufacturer in that you've just spent a big wad of cash on one of their scanners, um, 
And then that is often part of the conversation, to be honest. If you were buying a new gamma camera or a PET scanner or CT or whatever, you'd say, okay, well, if we if we spend however many hundreds of thousands, even millions, depending on what you're getting, um, what are the opportunities for development? Can we set up a research agreement? Um, can we talk to your scientific team before we make a decision about what we're purchasing? And it's part of setting up that relationship with the manufacturer that you aren't seen as a sort of passive um consumer of their product but more an active partner in scientific development and if you do that several times I find that it positions you and the people who research active in in your department as the kind of people that industry want to work with because it's it's easy to have a, an initial flare of enthusiasm like oh we'd like to do this 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 this, this and this but if you um get a reputation of sort of oh, we worked with this group in manchester or wherever he happened to be and they delivered this and we had some really interesting conversations about that and they spoke at our user group meetings and they did this look this little uh, video for our educational program and um it, it opens more doors the more of these conversations you start to have. So I've had several conversations with scanner manufacturers in the last couple of months and also uh, some of the uh, big therapeutic radiopharmaceutical companies because if you start approaching lots and lots of people and doing bits and pieces with all of them, it's kind of like you get known as a person who's research active and it, it, it almost gains its own momentum really. We're coming to the end of the podcast. Um, before I ask you for top tips, have you got your favourite physics joke? <laughs> oh man. Oh, this is a real. Uh, can I can I have a cheesy one rather than a funny one? Will that do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you call a gathering of nuclear physicists? Oh, I don't know. What do you call a gathering of nuclear physicists? A critical mass. <laughs> I should have guessed that. Oh, it's so bad. No, there's a reason I don't do stand-up as part of my science communication. I, my favourite is always, <laughs> why can't you trust an atom? Because they, they just make, make up, up everything. everything. <laughs> <Bada bing>. <laughs> <laughs> so, Heather, it's been amazing to talk to you. Have you got any top tips for anyone in our audience listening? The first top tip is that stubbornness will get you an awful long way. Um, and if you really want to do something, if you're really passionate about achieving something, getting on and doing the hard work and talking to people and see if you can work out a way of doing it and just not dropping something whilst stopping just short of being really annoying is actually um, a pretty effective approach in my experience. And second top tip is that when you're faced with resistance, when you're trying to change something, um, put just as much work into talking to the people who object to what you're trying to do as to the people who are in your corner because you need to build that community who are behind you and endorsing what you want to do and can see the purpose of it but you also need to win over everyone who's going to make it happen and it's not going to happen if people who are unconvinced are going to be obstructive so don't shy away from having those difficult conversations understand um, what the objections and the fears and the disappointments and the frustrations are that are 
being raised as objections, uh, as well as, you know, leaning hard into those people who are effectively your cheerleaders. And the other one is that you can do everything, but not all at once. And if you want to be successful, you need to focus and you need to say no and you need to look at something that's really great and really interesting um, and really exciting and go either I'm not doing that at all or I'm not doing that right now and in order to invest all your energy where it needs to be at this moment and I think that's something that only comes with time and experience and it's something that certainly I'm still working in working on because it requires a great deal of wisdom to know what to say no to and which tremendously glittery lovely things to say nah not just yet because I need to do this really important but foundational and terribly boring thing I can't get distracted by that shiny bauble over there. Oh, well, a huge thank you to our guests this evening, Heather Williams. Thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jane McNamara and Norman Joel Canson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the form linked with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Tatum Dirock, who will be discussing Shine Cancer Support, the role of yoga in cancer care, and their amazing career to date. So thank you all for listening and take care.